So hello and welcome to our series of podcasts from our Arrow Vision event in 2019. Wow, what a day, eh? What a day. This is um, So this is the first time we've run this event, and essentially what we've done is taken over the whole of Olympia. And I'm not even joking, the whole of Olympia. It's, it's a big old place, isn't it? It really is. It really is. And we filled it. We didn't do too bad, did we, actually? We've done Congrats fantastic. to all the Arrow team involved. That's what I'd say. Very that much. That was a very much big thing. old call, that. So what you're going to listen to over the next uh, six weeks is essentially the sessions, the breakout sessions that we had at Vision. So we've recorded them all as audio files, and we're essentially going to put them out for your listening delights. And I tell you what, that's going to cover a heck of a lot of topics as well, isn't it? Yes. So right. we've had uh, data intelligence, AI, IoT. So apologies in advance, you're going to hear my dulcet tones again. Security, cloud, and next generation data center. Wow. So, I, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I, we're too polite. Mate. We are too polite, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> so I think, um, hopefully, yeah, for your listening pleasure, um, if you were unable to attend Vision this year, um, I think, yeah, you get an insight as to hopefully some of the uh, some of the content, some of the trends, some of the some of the latest news, some of the updates from vendors old and new, yeah, absolutely, and from uh, across the uh, the Arrow family. Yes, very much so. Um, and uh, and yeah, I, you know, I, I would always suggest any feedback, much received. Yeah, hashtag Arrowfamily on Twitter. Yeah. Awesome. And we will, uh, yeah, hope you enjoy it and we'll speak to you soon. Brilliant. Enjoy. Welcome. Uh, thanks for joining the AI stream uh, at Vision. I hope you found the morning useful. Um, my name is Marco D'Angelo. Uh, I have the pleasure, uh, most of the time, of running the IBM division and the NVIDIA practice, uh, NVIDIA more so, um, uh, at, uh, at Arrow. I also deal with any uh, vendors that are working on AI. Um, so that's quite a few that you've seen out there today. Um, and I want to introduce the session today and explain a bit more about what's going to happen. Of the structure of today, um, if you look at your apps, uh, who those of you who have uh, downloaded the uh, the app for today, there are three polling questions available on there now. Uh, we'll be displaying those uh, at the end of the session, um, and this is all about feedback uh, that you guys are going to give us today around what your experiences uh, with AI are uh, and help needed and other such things. So um, I would encourage you to engage with those. Um, we've also included uh, a glossary in that um, in the AI stream. So if you look at the bottom towards the solution tracks, you'll be able to see a glossary. Um, we're familiar that there might be a, a terminology used today that not that glossary open, um, you should be able to ch check if there's anything you're unsure of um, uh, while, we're, while the uh, other vendors are speaking. So in terms of the structure of the, the afternoon, what will happen is uh, we'll be inviting three, three of our key vendors around AI, three of the vendors that we're seeing huge traction with, and three of the vendors that have got real pedigree in this space, uh, and they are IBM, NVIDIA, and Microsoft. Um, they'll all each have 20-minute pitches uh, around the tooling that they've developed around so in the morning, I think we heard some great context setting from various vendors around what's happening in the AI marketplace. And this session's really about the tooling that, that our channel ecosystem can use to actually make some of the things that we spoke about in the morning a reality. Um, there'll also be a panel session 
towards uh, the, after the, the pitches for 15 minutes. And those questions have been kind of garnered between the vendors and Arrow staff around kind of questions that we get um, often uh, around the AI space. So uh, we'll have an online kind of a panel on, on stage to answer those questions. And we will take further questions if we have um, time afterwards. And we'll wrap up with uh, a summary uh, from myself around some of the key learnings that we've seen over the past two years after we launched kind of the AI practice uh, and hopefully some kind of nuggets of information that, that you can take away and start, start accelerating your journey to AI. So. Um, I really liked, uh, I don't know about you, but I really liked Joe's um, context setting uh, around AI. I think uh, numbers sometimes can be a bit abstract around AI. Uh, we talk about uh, many tens of billion dollars worldwide market, um, but I really like the, the setting about what AI actually means to us. And um, I recently read a book actually from uh, a, an author called Reese Bryan. He talks about the fourth age. and. Uh, in talking about the fourth age, her fourth age of humanity, and he says, in the four ages, the first age uh, of human development was around uh, fire and language. Uh, language to explain com complex um, and abstract concepts. And fire, not just for heat and warmth, but actually for the breakdown of food. So that actually, once we used fire to actually start cooking food, it actually fundamentally changed the way our, our neurons worked in our brain. Um, so that was kind of the first stage. The second stage of human development he talked about, uh, and he made a very compelling case for the rise of agriculture and cities. Um, and agriculture, organized agriculture, led to specialization, i.e. the concept of having specialized, if you had specialized tasks, you, we could be much more efficient as a society rather than doing everything in a kind of autarkic way. Uh, and then uh, agriculture developed cities, cities developed um, uh, uh, wealth and property ownership, uh, and we're still tackling with some of those issues today. And that led to kind of the third age of human development, uh, which was all around wealth, money, uh, and writing. Um, uh, and that led, spurred uh, kind of the industrial age uh, and created the, the first real mega civilization. So the civilizations of Mesopotamia and South America and the ones that we all know. And the advent of the computer is actually in the third age. What what um, Reese actually explains is that AI will fundamentally transform the traje trajectory of human life on Earth. He argues for a fourth age, and we are at the beginning of this. So I, I love predictions around AI. Uh, and if you look at um, any of them from you know, IDC or PwC, read the reports, they actually only predict two or three years ahead because to predict 10 years ahead in this space is almost folly. Um, and I think some of the some of the concepts that we'll speak about today, just to set kind of the scene, and it's been mentioned a couple of times today. I think it's useful. What we're what we're speaking about here is what is known as narrow AI or weak AI. Um, it isn't um, artificial general intelligence, which is some of the cyborg thinking and how humans have developed could. Uh, computers could develop lateral and versatile thinking prowess greater than a human. Um, we're speaking about um, three concepts mainly. We're speaking about, you know, if you take the weak AI bracket, it can be divided into three kind of segments and three uh, development stages. And the first was classic AI, something that was spoken about earlier. Uh, the second was expert AI, and the third was machine learning. And, and if you have an analogy to understand these concepts, classic AI very much is um, if you were a farmer and you wanted to create uh, a machine to tell you when to best plant your seedlings, you would create a system in which you would input 
all your various variables, so soil type, weather, climate, uh, all those soil types, and it would suggest the time when you could plant your seedlings to, to have the greatest yield. An expert system would take that one step further and would take rules of planting those seedlings from 100 of the best farmers in your area to give you a more accurate and more uh, thought-forward thinking um, prediction. The area that we see most development, though, is in the area of machine learning, which is the third category around WKI. Um, and that's in that scenario of the farmer, this is a scenario where you continuously feed uh, information into the system about um, every crop you've ever planted uh, and how the yields performed and all the various attributes. And the machine would learn for itself when the best uh, yield would be for those seedlings. And this, if you take another concept, how did we beat the, you know, the chess masters um, of old? So historically, we beat them by uh, playing, feeding the machines with lots and lots of games, and they would eventually learn what the moves that the Grand Chess Masters used. The Grand Chess Masters today are, are beaten with, with machine learning. They just fed the rules. They're not fed with previous games. So machine learning is something that will come up, um, I think, quite a lot today. And in terms of um, predictions and what we've seen, I think if you look at... Um, if you look at predictions from, from people like IDC, there are three key areas where we've seen AI adoption take hold. Um, and it won't be surprising to you, I don't think. You know, virtual agents is the big one. Um, the second one is actually security, automation, and threat intelligence. And the third one is sales, um, recommendation, and automation. So things that we've actually you know, spoken about in the morning. But I would argue that there, as a channel partner, there'd be two things I'd be looking for in the kind of following presentations. The first thing would be, have you been involved in big data projects of yesteryear? What I mean by that is, we've been, you know, I've attended a number of these events now, and the last three years we've spoken about big data and the advent of big data. And if you look at the results of those projects, clients haven't had the return they expected in most cases. I think the figure from IDC is actually 70% of big data projects don't have the ROI that were initially expected. What you have there with AI is absolute groundswell and a bedding for an AI project. You've already organized your data, you've created your data lake, you've actually got the start of an AI project. So don't leave that potentially failed big data project. Use it as your springboard for future AI projects. And then we've mentioned the second one, you know, anything that can be automated or, or is repetitive is perfect for AI. And I think we'll see some tooling that you, could, you guys could use um, around uh, delivering projects um, in that sphere. Um, the last thing I'll leave you with is, I won't do numbers actually, because we've done numbers to death. And I think you all understand the market cap and the market opportunity here. Um, I think something really important was mentioned earlier around AI ethics, and something I'm seeing more and more in conversations I have with partners uh, around AI. So, you know, uh, I guess, hands up, who thought Facebook was the greatest thing in the world when it came out? But nobody, no, you all thought Facebook was good. I, I love Facebook, I thought it was, uh, it allowed me to uh, keep in touch with family, it allowed me to uh, post photos of myself sitting down so no one could see I was like five foot nine. Uh, Don't laugh. <laughs> thanks very much for that. Um, but I think our view of Facebook um, has f fundamentally changed, I think, over, over the last year, maybe, you know, over the last year and a half. And I think that might be because of what's happened with Cambridge Analytica, for example. So I think AI ethics will become more and more pertinent as this technology takes off. And I would encourage all of you to have a view on it because you... The
you'll be expected to help your clients on that ethics journey. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce our first speakers um, from IBM, uh, Chris and Adam. Um, so over to you guys. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, tough crowd. Thanks, guys. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shout deliberately because I know that it's a, a noisy room and also the AV guys asked me to. Um, so if it comes across a bit loud on the speakers, then you'll just have to watch the replay and it'll be seamless. Uh, so uh, let me introduce myself. I am Chris Parsons. I'm the AI technology lead for IBM Systems Europe. So IBM Systems, the bit of IBM that still makes physical infrastructure. Uh, my job is to look after um, our clients that are using it and to help them get the most out of the platform. Hi everyone, my name is Adam Deleu. I'm an IT specialist at IBM and I work with business partners to help them adopt our technology. Great, uh, thank you. So um, I'm really glad that Marco did a fantastic job there saying how we've done numbers to death and how we should never see any more numbers. Because uh, I'm about to begin with some numbers. Um, yes, yeah, so, so these numbers are not IBM's. They are from McKinsey, the global management consultancy firm. And they did some investigation into um, how technology has changed labor productivity. Concretely, maths geeks in the room, this is the per person per year percentage of labor productivity, right, increase. So this is how much each of these technologies changed how effective we were in the workplace. Now, I think there's something really interesting that the, this data shows, right? Uh, often, when I'm talking to clients, business partners, people in the street about AI, they will say that it's like the next industrial revolution, right? That's what AI is to us. It's the next industrial revolution. Well, these numbers prove that to be wrong, right? Because if we look at the steam engine in the 1800s, largely heralded as being the reason we had the industrial revolution, it caused us to be 0.3% per person more productive than we were before, right? And then if you look at uh, IT, the internet, right, in the early 2000s, the late 90s, that caused us to be 0.6%. But already today, in this decade, AI technology tooling, these systems, have made us 1.2% more productive per person year on year. So when people say that AI is the next industrial revolution, I think that's a wild understatement, frankly. I think it's going to be dramatically bigger than that. And now is the time to start planning our businesses for that change, to start to implement those processes today so we're not caught out. It's not just McKinsey. MIT's School of Business, the Sloan School of Business in MIT, they surveyed Fortune 500 companies, so the 500 largest companies listed on the US stock market, and they pretty much all said that AI is going to change how they do business, right? Like 80% of them saw it as a strategic advantage, a way they were going to use technology to take out their competition. 60% of them said they were already planning business changes because they knew it was going to change their operational model. It was going to change how they did business, the way their colleagues came to work, the way their colleagues engaged with them as a company. So this isn't no, this, so I think AI is no longer a case of will AI change the world, we've transitioned. And now it's a question of how will AI change the world 
and how quickly will AI change the world? So I think that really is the dramatic change from an industry perspective. Um, anyway, that's enough of the numbers, as Marco promised. So uh, the, the thing that we are doing at IBM, right, is we've realized that uh, AI is absolutely a team sport. This is not the case of one person sitting in a basement with a laptop building these systems, right? That's not what's happening. It's all of these different personas within an organization, from your data engineer that's responsible for your data warehouse, for that big data project you created, through to the data scientist that's going to sit there at his keyboard and build you the next deep neural network, all the way through to your DevOps guys and your app developers that are going to be responsible for integrating this into whatever IT system touches your end client or that your teams internally are using. So it's about bringing all of these people together. And IBM's focus is creating an end-to-end -end journey, an end-to-end -end experience for all of these personas so they can collaborate. And instead of spending their time working with all of these disparate tools and disparate technologies, they can focus on transforming the business using AI. Right? And there's a number of different ways we're doing it. Now, of course, I should preface that by saying you can jump on and off any way you want, but our goal is to align these people so they can collaborate together and work more effectively. Thanks, Chris. So, yeah, IBM, we've got a lot of technology and we've got quite a few offerings in the space of AI. So what Chris and I are hoping to do today is to demystify those offerings, help you understand how you might apply them to the use cases you have with AI. So the main offerings and tools we're going to talk about today are Watson Studio, which is a development environment for doing AI, Watson APIs, which are ready to consume AI services, and Watson Machine Learning Accelerator, which is a combination of a hardware and software stack which enables you to do AI at the fastest possible pace. So all of those offerings are available in our public cloud, uh, and most of them are also available in our private cloud stack as well, which means that enterprises can do this stuff behind the firewall, and you can also do this stuff on other clouds as well, including um, Amazon's AWS and Microsoft Azure, which gives us a multi-cloud strategy. So diving into the technology a bit more, in the middle of this picture, you'll see a suite of tools which we call Watson Studio. This is basically like an IDE, an integrated development environment for doing AI development in the cloud. It's for people in multiple roles. So Chris was talking about maybe in the past, the people who understand the data are somehow kind of in silos um, from the people who understand the domain of that data. So with a tool like this, it supports people collaborating together across different roles. So application developers, data scientists, and domain experts, they can all collaborate together in the task of connecting to data, uh, kind of wrangling with that data to get it ready for AI, then training, uh, building, testing, and deploying AI models at scale. So the way that that works is it's built on um, open source frameworks for machine learning and deep learning. So all of the technology you've probably heard of, things like um, SPSS and CAFE and TensorFlow and Torch. Plus, the users can collaborate with technologies like Jupyter Notebooks or RStudio. And there's also a whole bunch of you know, additional capability which has been added by IBM. So for example, uh, there's a capability for enterprises to catalog their data. So it's a way of um, publicizing the data and governing that data as well, but making sure that those AI professionals have access to the data that they need in order to add some AI value on top of it. There's also an element about training AI models as well. So depending on what kind of machine learning or AI you're doing, 
You might need access to a lot of computing resource to train the model. And this suite of tools in the cloud provides that. So a lot of compute resource together with GPUs if you need it. And because it's in the cloud, then it plays nicely to the economics of cloud. And obviously, you only pay um, for what you need. And there's also a place to deploy models once you've built them. So if you want to publish an AI model, make it accessible, make it scalable as an API so the app developer can call it from a client application, you can do that as well. And finally, there's a whole part, um, which is the final box in the middle there called OpenScale, which is all about kind of monitoring AI in production. And it, it begins to address the challenge of using AI in transactional workflows. So if you're an enterprise and you've built a model to score people for loan applications, some guy gets rejected and he calls up and says, why have you rejected me? And the line of business need a way, a dashboard, to be able to explain the decision making that that AI model has taken. Also, you know, things change. So as more data and more results become available, then the accuracy of AI can drift. And the enterprise needs to be alerted of that so they can go back around this cycle, retrain the model, and improve the accuracy once again. And finally, there's a capability of detecting bias as well. So you know, if the, um, the data scientists have accidentally created a model which is somehow biased you know, with that loan application, maybe it's biased to people in the north rather than the south or vice versa, then you know, that's not good. So with AI OpenScale, it can automatically detect that bias, give the enterprise an opportunity to retrain the model and correct it, or alternatively kind of apply a sticky plaster and at runtime uh, adjust the model's behavior to compensate for that bias. So, you know, I've mentioned this is available on our public cloud platform. It's also available on our private cloud platform for those enterprises who want to do this stuff behind the firewall. And that top layer um, in the diagram here about pre-built AI services, that's what we also refer to as Watson APIs. So I'll talk about those on the next slide. But there's a relationship between this um, AI development lifecycle and our pre-built Watson APIs. So for example, if you're a data scientist and you're working with some data that, let's say, create, uh, has in it some unstructured text or some images, you might want to call a you know, visual recognition classifier in the cloud to classify the image and give you an additional data point which you can use, use in that uh, AI development lifecycle. And that's exactly what you can do with Watson Studio. Okay, so I've mentioned the Watson APIs a couple of times. They are, as I say, pre-built APIs that you can consume really easily. You don't need to be a data scientist to take advantage of these services. So, you know, they fulfill a few different use cases, but broadly speaking, it's about building applications that can have a more natural user interface. So we're obviously talking about things like Watson Assistant, with which you can build chatbot applications, or maybe speech to text, or text to speech, or maybe building an application which better understands its user and is able to respond and interact in different ways. So we've got a service which we call Watson Personality Insights. And with that, you can take some text that's been written by an individual. And based on the words that they chose and some science, you get back metadata which uh, helps you understand their personality. So you know, are they hedonistic? Are they an extrovert? Are they more conservative? What kind of things can we sell to them, for example? There's also a lot of capability about natural language processing. So we've got a service which we call Watson Natural Language Understanding. So you can present it with some text, and you get back metadata about that text, which helps a computer system understand the meaning of that text. So you know, traditionally, that's something which computer systems might struggle with. 
Uh, and the metadata might include things like, you know, what are the key entities in that text, like people or places? What concept is it discussing? What kind of taxonomy might, might it fall into? Or what's the sentiment of that text? So, you know, I've mentioned these services, they're ready to consume, and they are, but many of them come with a piece of tooling that enables you to add to their training. And that tooling is quite easy to use. You don't need to be a data scientist to use it. So, for example, with the natural language understanding, I could um, add to its training to um, teach it how to understand the language of a more specific domain. So let's say I was working in uh, the car insurance industry, um, and I might want to have it be able to understand car accident reports. So one car crashed into another, and there was an outcome and maybe an injury to the driver. So if I want to train it to understand that kind of document, I would use a tool. And the tool that I would use is called Knowledge Studio. And in Knowledge Studio, I simply kind of upload some representative documents um, about car accidents. And I define a type system to define what I want to extract. So make and model of car, injury. And then by way of example, I basically kind of digitally highlight every time those documents mention, let's say, an injury. So broken leg, broken arm, cuts and bruises, they're all different types of injuries. And then under the covers, the tool is going to do machine learning for you and create a custom model which you can deploy from the tool into your instance of that natural language understanding API. Meaning that in the future, when I call that API with a car accident report that it's never seen before, it's probably going to have a pretty good chance of detecting and uh, notifying you, you know, when there's evidence of an injury and tagging it accordingly. Now, we also have some capabilities around search and discovery as well. So we've got a, an API which we call Watson Discovery. And with that, you can upload documents into the cloud, so PDFs, Word files. There's a crawler as well. And you can add them to an index. And then there's uh, an API that you can use to build search applications for users to help them find the answers in those documents that they're looking for. So, so far, so good. But you know, the clever bit is, before you add those documents to the index, you can enrich them with the result of that natural language processing. So all of that metadata about the concepts or the sentiments or the key entities. And if you've created one of those custom models, you can get evidence about the entities relating to injuries, for example. So now you can begin to imagine building applications which are more comprehensive and, and help users find what they're looking for more quickly and more easily. So you can search for all the documents which mention a certain keyword and the concept of um, a leg injury or something like that. Or you can build like content analytics applications. So give me all the documents which mention the company Apple uh, and I want to know their average sentiment on a month by month basis. So I've mentioned that those APIs are available on our public cloud. They're free to get started with, so you can begin to explore them and understand their capabilities. After certain thresholds, obviously, you pay on a generally a fraction of a penny on a per API basis. Some of them are also available on our private cloud platform. There's not parity yet, but the private cloud ones are generally focused on chatbot use cases. Uh, but in the middle, we also have an option to do a premium deployment. So this is for enterprises who are looking for a bit more um, isolation and potentially you know, security, meaning you can get, get an instance of one of these uh, Watson APIs running on dedicated compute on the IBM public cloud. But whichever deployment model you choose, you know, the important thing to know is that any training that you do with these APIs to um, add to the capabilities with the tools that I talked about is your IP. 
So IBM won't take that training and use it to benefit anybody else, not IBM nor any other clients as well. So this is kind of the mega chart. So Chris and I have tried to summarize all the technologies that we've talked about. So on the right hand side, we've got a few industry solutions. So that's a combination of a cloud, a Watson API, some training, and a use case or a user interface on top of that. On the left hand side, we've got those Watson APIs. So that's for the use case of clients who want to add some kind of AI capability very quickly and very easily. You can retrain them, but at the end of the day, IBM's already chosen the algorithms which underpin those APIs. So you can't really do much to influence that. But in the middle, you've got the capabilities or the tools for those clients who want to do the really interesting stuff. So using their own data, having maximum flexibility to choose and train their own models. So there, you've got a choice, really. You can use Watson Studio, which is the development environment I talked about, where people work in roles to develop and create AI models. Or you've got Watson Machine Learning Accelerator, which is that hardware platform built on Power9. It comes with its own tools, or you can use Watson Studio on top of it, and it allows you to do AI development at the fastest possible pace. And Chris is going to explain how. Yeah, no pressure then. Right, so um, basically what we have done, and we did shortly after the, um, the, the Jeopardy win, right, was we decided to open source our processor architecture. We did that for a very good reason. Uh, these, um, these problems, machine learning, AI basically, at its core is a bunch of really complex mathematics. And the best architecture to run that on happens to be the GPU. So we started to collaborate with NVIDIA and with Google and with Mellanox and Tyan to design systems just to address that workload, right? So the whole server from the ground up was only geared to running these workloads. And the purpose behind that is when you've got a problem, like I mentioned at the beginning, around competitive advantage, where you need to get there fast and iterate quickly, it's the platform to do it, right? Uh, and we've got clients using this platform today. For instance, uh, Bridger Pipeline, who are a US-based uh, oil pipeline organization. So these guys have 3,500 miles of pipeline. Their challenge was monitoring the telemetry from that, right? This stuff generates petabytes of sensor data, of image data, of various other types of data daily. They couldn't pay enough engineers to sit there and read those readouts and determine when stuff was going to go wrong, right? So they came to us and we worked with them to build a platform that would ingest all that data in real time and make decisions about the status of their pipeline with a view to more accurately making these predictions and stopping their environmental impact. So what this meant, right, was that they were able to go from having a platform that, so here it says, right, one fifth of the time. What that meant was, so a fifth of the time for these guys, okay, had it been Deepwater Horizon, a fifth would have been the difference between 12 billion and 65 billion dollars of damage, right? So being able to respond more quickly and picking the right architecture for these problems is really important. We've also done a lot of work to improve traditional machine learning algorithms, right? The likes of logistics regression, linear regression, things like that. And we've built SnapML which takes those traditional machine learning algorithms and accelerates them to run on GPUs. What that means is we can make workloads that would normally have taken just over an hour complete in less than a minute, right? Or less than two minutes. And that's what that looks like on a chart if I plot them as two bars next to each other. Um, well, basically, I know we're all bored of stats. Basically, um, if you are the client that it's taking an hour for to process this data, to process a terabyte of data, and your competitor's doing it in a minute and a half, right? you're losing 59 minutes. And this client in particular was looking at online advertising, web advertising, 
you can't afford to wait 59 minutes to get the result back that everyone else is getting in a minute and a half. The other thing to notice on this chart is the data center footprint. We took 90 x86 derivative servers and ran it on four of our systems because they're designed to run this workload. They're engineered to run this workload. Uh, and finally, because I've already had the sign about two minutes ago saying you have 10 seconds to go. Um, finally, I just want to talk about Power AI Vision. This is our on the booth demo. Please go and check it out. It's really, really cool. Um, we're building tooling that puts AI in the hands of the expert so that you no longer have to be a data scientist or know TensorFlow inside out to build AI applications for image and video workloads, right? You can just sit there in front of a web browser and build that AI. Curate your data set, train your model, and then actually deploy it so it can be integrated into an end application without writing a single line of code. Go on over and check it out. It's really, really cool. Um, and also, we'll give you a free Cadbury Hero. Um, so well worth, well worth looking at. Uh, but thank you so much. I'm going to hand back over to Marco late. I apologize for that. Um, but thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Can you hear me okay? Yeah? Okay, good. So good afternoon and welcome. Uh, my name is Donya Briggs and I'm the Partner Business Manager at NVIDIA and I'm responsible for managing the strategic partnerships here in the UK. And joining me is Johnny Hancocks, who's NVIDIA's Deep Learning Solution Architect with a specific focus around healthcare. Um, during the next 20 minutes or so, we are going to be talking about the AI opportunity uh, from a partner perspective. And um, what we'll do to demonstrate that is show you some um, specific healthcare use cases. Uh, we're also going to talk about the role of the partner ecosystem in taking this transformational technology to market. What we are seeing is deep learning AI applications that operate on huge amounts of data that previously were not feasible. What we're really talking about is being data and evidence-driven in our healthcare workflow. I would love to see AI used for things that take a lot of our time, which will downstream lead to better outcomes for patient care. trying to change the future of medicine. The problem we have today is so much data and so little ability to process it. And so the question is how do we apply deep learning and put it in the hands of radiologists, give them AI tools, and then give them an AI infrastructure. Make it super easy for them to share work among themselves, but we've got to give them a starting point. Everyone in this room is somewhat passionate about healthcare and what AI can do for healthcare, um, either professionally uh, or because it affects every single one of us and our lives and the lives of those people around us. 
And we're seeing huge medical advances in healthcare um, that AI are doing. So we're seeing acceleration in the development of drug discovery, all the way to faster and more accurate diagnosis, so that doctors, doctors can spend more time with patients on their personalized treatment plans. But healthcare isn't the only industry where we're seeing uh, AI transform. We're seeing transformations across all industries quicker than ever before. Um, so finance, for example, in protecting our money and protecting our own identity for fraud detection, or creating smarter uh, cities and safer cities um, in public places, being able to detect odd behavior uh, in a busy airport or a busy train station, or finding a lost child in a crowded place. Uh, and if you're a partner here today and you're selling into any one of these industries, it's your opportunity to challenge your customers. Ask them, you know, what is your AI strategy today? And if they don't have one, then help them create one and help them initiate that. Um, because you are and you can be the AI expert to help them start this journey. And AI is a transformative uh, technology. It's not going away. Uh, it will be the new standard and any business who isn't adopting AI today and implementing an AI strategy will absolutely be left behind. So help your customers do that today. So NVIDIA amongst IBM and Microsoft are just you know, three examples of pioneering technology companies that are applying AI into the healthcare industry and beyond. And in fact, the, the story of NVIDIA starts from gaming. So in 1999, we uh, invented the GPU. And that was really to spark the uh, PC gaming market. Uh, and from there, NVIDIA pioneered graphics and virtual reality, AI and VDI, and more recently, autonomous objects such as self-driving cars. And the common denominator in all of those areas is the GPU. Uh, so the GPU uh, and GPU computing is becoming more important now than ever before because there's the end of, the, of Moore's law. And GPU computing, if we go back to that, uh, the, the video where it said we have vast amounts of data and we, we live in a very data-rich world now um, where the, the processing power uh, makes us not be able to, uh, to use that data effectively. Well, GPU computing solves that problem. So the NVIDIA Partner Network is, is a very comprehensive network that we provide to you. Um, now we have at NVIDIA industry business specialists in all different areas, healthcare, higher education and research, oil and gas and so on. Um, and despite that direct engagement with our customers, we do not and we cannot sell direct to customers. So we're a 100% channel-led organization and you as partners are absolutely critical in NVIDIA's go-to-market strategy. So we have a number of different solution um, or partner types. We have solution providers, integration partners, CSPs, and so on. Um, so it's important for, for me as a partner business manager to ensure that you are well equipped and fully enabled to take this technology to market. And it's not just about defining the technology that you're taking to market and defining the products, but really understanding your customer's problem. So understand where they are on their AI journey, and if they're at the very early stages, then perhaps they need um, something to get started with development. So it may be a desk-side data science workstation, so you can then nurture that relationship and help them on their AI journey into a more production system such as a DGX. 
Now we have some fundamental uh, partner program pillars, um, which are you know benefits to, to partners. I'm not going to spend too much time on this slide, but a few things I want to, to highlight here is the business partnership. Success all comes from the business partnership that you have with not just NVIDIA, but also through your DISTI, uh, which may be Arrow, uh, or it could be through your storage vendors. And it's ensuring that there is a symbiotic relationship between all of these different partner types within the ecosystem. Uh, leveraging your incentives and your promotions and your pricing discounts so that you can remain competitive uh, and also so that you can recover some costs from your value add. Uh, training and enablement is key, so train, retrain and develop your teams internally and identify a dedicated AI practice to, to help you get started and be that AI expert that your, your customers need. Now we have an abundance of resources available uh, in the partner portal, um, so if you're not a partner today and you want to be a partner, then please you know, speak to me or somebody at Arrow and we can, we can get you signed up and you'll have all of the assets available to you through the partner portal. Now I just want to finish before we hand over to Johnny to talk through some specific healthcare use cases about what I personally feel are the six steps to be a successful partner in taking AI to market. The first one is demo capabilities. Now AI, any customer would want to do an AI POC, um, but to do that you as a partner need to have the demo capabilities. So we help you from NVIDIA, we give you a significant discount on your demo units. Um, so that you can provide uh, a guided proof of concept for every customer. Dedicated resources in the same way as your customers will need to build a specific AI team, you should also invest in an AI leader within your account. Choose an AI pick, uh, which is a person in charge, so that they can develop that AI strategy and they can um, you know, liaise with all of the AI innovators in the partner ecosystem. Expand your reach, so if you have if you're selling into healthcare today but you're not having the discussions around AI, use that opportunity to challenge your customers and ask them what they're doing in AI. Are they processing lots of data? Um, do they need help with their data analysis and so on? Vice versa, if, you're, if you want to break into new markets but you're already skilled up in selling AI, use a similar concept and leverage your existing skills to go and break into new markets. Activity, keep busy. It's easier said than done, but stay busy and stay on the front line. Do lots of activities and we can help you with any specific events and targeted campaigns. We have assets readily available so that you can simply go and execute. Maximize profitability, I've already touched on that very brief, briefly, but leverage everything that's available to you. We don't want you to leave any money on the table. As a partner business manager, it's so frustrating when I see partners leave money uh, on the table that's there for them to recover costs and then reinvest back into their team. And finally, one of the most important points is all about the engagement with NVIDIA and your DISTI. So not just your engagement with your partner business manager, but also with your industry specialists within NVIDIA and solution architects so that you can really understand the challenges that each customer in each uh, healthcare sector, for example, have. Uh, and without further ado, I think it's a perfect segue into Johnny Hancock's to talk about the healthcare use cases. Thank you, Donia. So yeah, I'm gonna talk a little bit about some of the healthcare um, kind of use cases that we've encountered um, uh, recently at, at NVIDIA. But I mean, you know, healthcare is uh, one of many verticals that we look at, and I think healthcare perhaps has some of the most extreme challenges, but I think those challenges are a problem in, mo uh, are prevalent in probably most industries. So, you know, if you're not 
interested in healthcare, um, don't worry about it. It's uh, you can really take this as a to apply to any industry. So I just wanted to start off with this this slide of if anybody watches, have I got news for you? This is very much in the spirit of that. Um, so it, and it really serves the purpose of showing the kind of breadth of some of the things that GPs are actually doing in the real world. And I'm not going to invite you for answers on this because it's rather difficult to tell. But um, from top left, let me just describe what some of the things you're looking at are. Um, this is actually a simulation of the early universe. And it's done on about 4,000 of our sort of top-end uh, GPUs. It took about 80 hours to run. Um, and it's modeling the behavior of about 3 trillion particles shortly after the Big Bang. So um, that's basically what the early universe maybe looked like. Um, that one there is actually using a piece of software called Octane Renderer, which produces these really uh, realistic ray tracing visualizations so for, for architecture and various other sort of industries. Um, this one here is slightly unusual in that those faces are actually not real. They are um, completely made up by the computer. And they're part of this, uh, an experiment that was done to sort of see how, how realistic we could generate celebrity faces. So it's trained on the celebrity data database. So basically, those three are all um, made up. They're, they're not real. They're sort of simulations. This one is actually a real patient. Um, and this represents some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about in a bit more detail in a minute. So this is actually uh, a ray traced rendering of somebody's internal organs. And this actually involves several um, components of AI to, to, to get to this part. So in the first place, we're using um, some, we're using the GPU to do some noise removal on the original sort of signal from a, a CT scanner in this case. Um, we're then using um, AI to actually, uh, we, well, we're using a, actually, first of all, we're using a, another algorithm to generate a, a really high fidelity um, volumetric image from this raw data. And then we're using AI to segment the organs in that. And then we're using ray tracing, which uses a bit of AI in that as well, because it actually um, takes a low resolution image and then uses AI to learn how to fill in the sort of more intricate details. So you can, um, you can see how much GPU is used in this process. And this is very much indicative of the sort of things that we're seeing today. Um, and this is part of a would have been generated using this, this new uh, platform called Project Clara, which is what I'm going to talk a little bit about. So within healthcare, there's a lot of challenges. Um, and, uh, you know, as I was mentioning before, these apply to other industries as well. But, you know, for example, um, often people who are developing these algorithms, they tend to train them on these highly created data sets. And when you then put them in the real world, they, they struggle. Um, as was mentioned before, you know, infrastructure today, a lot of sort of computing infrastructure, is, was built for a different era. So, um, you know, big data sort of era uses quite different technology. Um, a lot of these things are sort of, you know, more human than they are technological as well. So, uh, you know, systems talking different languages, data being held in silos. Um, so, uh, and of course, the other thing is, Deep learning in particular needs to be trained on very large amounts of data. 
And to do that training, you need to have labeled data. And getting hold of high quality labeled data, particularly in the healthcare setting where you need a you know, clinician uh, to do it is not easy because quite frankly, they've got better things to do than to you know, draw round contours around medical images. So um, all these things we're, we're trying to sort of address. So just to look at one of these uh, examples, the, the, the sort of real-world data against what, what data is trained on, this is actually a, a nice head CT image. It's high resolution, um, there's good contrast. You know, this is, this is the sort of ideal sort of use case that if, if all images, were, medical images were like that, life would be a lot easier. The reality is that what, you know, what we end up with are these images where, you know, some parts of it are in different resolutions than others and the, the contrast is not quite so good and the resolution is not quite so high um, but actually it gets worse than that um, again <laughs> real world can throw some real curveballs and you know unless your AI has been trained in a particularly kind of robust way then you know patients can do some rather odd things like they can turn up to clinics with only half a brain and then the AI algorithm says you know what's going on here or you know, poorly people tend to move around a lot in scanners, so you get this this sort of you know movement noise. Um, often the procedure doesn't quite capture the area that it was supposed to, so you're not getting the the whole head; you're just getting the neck or half of the head. And, you know, so what does the AI make of this? Or <laughs> most extreme cases, people turn up with objects that the AI's never seen before, like. Um, uh, you know, nail gun has deposited a nail in someone's brain, um, and in this case, they didn't actually know, they didn't realise that it was even there. Um, these things actually happen in the real world, and you know, like I say, you need to train systems to be robust. So the other thing, other real-world problem in today's hospitals is that we've got all these disparate systems. You know, some of them talk to other parts of the system. There's lots of hardware. You know, there's a bit of sort of GPU here and there, so there'll be GPUs in some of the scanners. There'll be um, GPUs for perhaps some of the visualization. But it's, you know, it's a bit of a kind of spaghetti landscape out there. So what we're trying to do is to really sort of clear up this, this mess a little bit and have a platform that, that removes some of the sort of expensive hardware from um, some of the... Uh, imaging acquisition devices like MRIs and CTs and consolidates that compute into a, it could be on the cloud, it could be in the hospital on-premise data center and provide a platform that allows these AI workflows to be built. So, I mean, you know, part of the motivation for this is that if you think of something like a, an MRI scanner in a hospital, it's a very expensive piece of kit and it generally won't be replaced you know, for maybe 10, maybe even 15 years. You know, that's the, the lifespan that this hardware will have. If you think you know, what your phone was like 10 or 15 years ago, um, you know, and you think how quickly AI and technology is moving, what we want to do is to, is to sort of make these machines not have quite so much technology in them and move it into the data center because this allows this, you know, the latest sort of technology to be delivered to uh, the, the clinic. It makes you know, for a much more flexible system. Um, so what are the benefits of this and who are the kind of stakeholders? So for the clinicians, um, we want to produce better patient outcomes. You know, AI is, is fantastically good at, um, at spotting various you know, pathologies and I'll talk a little bit about that in a, in a bit. 
And you know, we want to reduce waiting times and we want uh, physicians, clinicians to be able to spend more time with patients and, and not, you know, remove some of the repetitive sort of, you know, longer tasks that take a long time. Technical people, we want to be able to provide, you know, simple deployment. We want ISVs to be able to generate new algorithms and to be able to, um, to uh, deploy them without having to sort of reinvent the wheel, you know, by having to integrate them themselves with data systems, PACS um, and DICOM data systems where hospital data is kept. And of course the hospitals themselves, they want to reduce costs and they want to increase throughput and they want to, you know, uh, have, have healthier patients. So that's, you know, that's the sort of motivation behind this. Um, this is a great example of, of, you know, what I was describing before where you can see these different stages of, you know, this is the raw data, this is the uh, cleaned up image that you can do with GPUs with image reconstruction. Um, artificial intelligence has segmented out the organs and then this rendering and visualization has actually, uh, you know, created an image that can be rotated in real time for clinicians to, you know, surgical planning, for example. If the colors don't look terribly realistic, it's because we've been to some events before where members of the audience with a you know, fragile disposition have actually fainted when they've seen the sort of realism of these things. So our CEO actually said, can you make it clown colors so no one faints? Uh, <laughs> In terms of the technology itself, um, there's a lot of boxes and things here, and I don't, I'm not going to go into any detail, but the, the, the sort of take-home message from this is that we're using kind of standard open source technologies, um, things like Docker containers, and that they ensure um, a great deal of kind of flexibility and inter interoperability. Uh, and these are all built on, you know, open source um, platforms such as, you know, Python and, uh, uh, or TensorFlow, um, PyTorch, deep learning frameworks, and then some other sort of, you know, DevOps uh, tools as well, which people will be generally familiar with. Um, we also split this up into sort of two phases of, of the tools, which allow people to train networks, which is the sort of Clara training, and then the, the, the tools which a hospital would use to then deploy those algorithms, which we call Clara inference or Clara deploy. Um, so a great example of where this, this sort of thing could be used. So this is um, lung nodule detection, and this is a, a, a CT scan, and because it's a volumetric scan, it takes a long time for a clinician to scour through all the different sort of, you know, frames that this generates. And this is, again, you know, where AI is just fantastic. So AI can basically free up a doctor's time for about four hours a day, save them looking through this. So imagine what you could do with those extra four hours. And this is actually data that's come from, um, you know, a case study in China. Um, and the other thing is that the, 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 the uh, research professor who, who conducted this sort of study into this technology said he was amazed he, that the AI was basically exhibiting the skills of a sort of uh, radiologist with 10 years of experience. I think the other important message about this is that when you combine um, a clinician with AI, you basically get something that's greater than some of the parts as well. The two tend to complement one another. The physician's experience, you know, counts in some ways, and the AI is very good at, you know, not missing things because it's tired or whatever, overworked. Um, this is also the uh, 
a slightly different um, healthcare use case, but I think Yap, our, our VP and Amir, showed um, a little bit about this. This is Oxford Nanopore Technology, who use some of our hardware to power their. Uh, this is a sort of handheld device that you can do genomic sequencing. So this is obviously used to um, track things like the progression of bacteria and disease. Um, and the fact that you can have this thing now, it's handheld, so you can use it in the field, is, is probably set to sort of revolutionize you know, any no number of sort of different areas of medicine. So it takes a range of hardware to um, deal with these, some of these different uh, you know, use cases. And we tend to see a kind of progression with people, and I'm sure this is the same with you know, your, your customers and part, you know, partners, but people tend to start off with experimenting with the clouds where they can dip in and out, and then they might move you know, across the spectrum from things which are perhaps designed to go in a workstation to more data center uh, solutions, and we can talk you know, more about those on the, on the stand. Um, finally, I just wanted to also mention that we have this education um, sort of department at NVIDIA and whose job really is to sort of educate the world on AI. Um, and this is something which you can obviously have a look at on our website, Deep Learning Institute or DLI. Um, we, we teach all sorts of courses for AI for people who've got no uh, you know, computer experience to people who, who are specialists in certain areas. So well worth checking out if you want to learn a little bit more. Ooh, with that, uh, thank you very much. Any better? Um, if you want to download the app, it's called Attendify, small blue icon. You need to add your arrow email address in there, and you'll be able to vote on the polls in the activity stream, which is on your front page. So uh, a number of you already have done, but if you want to vote, that's the way you do it. And without further ado. Thank you very much. Mic on, yes. Excellent. So my name is Phil Harvey. I'm a cloud solution architect for data and artificial intelligence at Microsoft, and I'm afraid there is only one of me, not two. So I'm going to kick off with a story about the use of artificial intelligence for good. Now on the screen here, what you can see, this is a map of a part of the world before anybody has gone in and done any illegal small-scale mining. After, you can see the impact. There's an impact on the ecology in the local area. There's an impact on the society for, because with illegal mining comes illegal jobs and illegal conditions and it has a huge impact on the environment. Using machine learning technology, a researcher called Olivia Close has built a model to detect the early stages of illegal small-scale mining from satellite images. So as opposed to somebody having to go boots on the ground to search for illegal mines, they can now be detected from satellite images and shut down much more quickly. And it's this kind of application of artificial intelligence that really excites me. I weirdly, by no foresight whatsoever, have a degree in artificial intelligence from the year 2000. And this is the reason that I like this stuff. Microsoft just so happens to align with the way that I see the world and our new mission under Satya of empowering every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more aligns perfectly with artificial intelligence. We have, as 
plenty of people on the stand will be happy to talk to you about. Intelligent, intelligent cloud and intelligent edge technologies stretching all the way across into multi-sense and multi-device experiences. We saw a little bit about HoloLens this morning. I'm going to focus in on artificial intelligence. You can come and talk to me on the stand a little bit about quantum computing, but I confuse myself when I talk about that, so we're going to remain focused. The way we like to think about artificial intelligence is from the perspective of reasoning over data. And we've heard about imperfect data from an NVIDIA just there. That ability of machines to interpret that data in new ways is very powerful. Understanding the meaning of that data, whether it's medical images, whether it's spoken word, whether it's text, is very exciting. And we're able to interact with people in new ways. You'll hear people talking about chatbots and conversational user interfaces when they're talking about artificial intelligence. Microsoft Research has been at the forefront of machine learning technology for a number of years now. We're very proud of the fact that a lot of the algorithms that we provide throughout different parts of our technology are based on the research that's won prizes in reaching human parity across the world of AI. Everything from vision all the way through to speech and text understanding. You'll also hear a lot of content. I'm moving at pace here because we want to get to the really meaty examples, I think, about ethical AI. And Microsoft has had AI principles for a number of years now. And this has been consolidated into a book, small link down here, aka.ms slash futurecomputed, where it gives the details of how we approach artificial intelligence and its impact on society. You can see understanding concepts of fairness, reliability and safety, privacy and security, underpinned by the balance between transparency and accountability, both transparency of process to help people understand how their data is being used by these tools, and also the understanding of who is accountable when things go wrong and how that can be dealt with. Satya, our new CEO, you heard a lot about him this morning, says our goal is to democratize AI to empower every person and every organization to achieve more. And this goes across all of our products. So if you're using a Microsoft product, there is some piece of artificial intelligence infused within that. From Bing, because everybody uses Bing, right? big pause there. Uh, Cortana, Office 365 and Dynamics through to the AI platform, I'll cover in a little more detail later, through to pre-built business solutions. So starting off with the intelligent products, if you're using Office 365 for example, you have access to advanced threat protection. This is machine learning algorithms built into an AI system to help keep you and your data safe. You can use things like My Analytics, which takes a more helpful view on the way that you use your time. So it uses machine learning algorithms to evaluate the use, in, uh, use of your time in your calendar and to give you suggestions about how to be more productive. You can even get it to help you design your PowerPoint slides. I don't use this one, because I like to design my own slides, as you can probably tell. And because it's artificial intelligence, there's a picture of a cat. But the key thing here is that Word and other Microsoft Office tools will automatically generate alt text for your images in the documents using artificial intelligence capabilities, which makes your documents more accessible for those in the workplace and outside of it who need to use screen readers. So artificial intelligence can help and empower people to achieve more in their work through Office 365. 
Within Dynamics, you have AI working across the data within that system to provide predictive, actionable insights supported by the Power Platform, from Power Apps to Power BI to Flow, which is a low or no code environment for building connected together business processes, all of which have access to our artificial intelligence capabilities. The core currency of any business is the ability to turn their data, and we've heard a lot about this earlier, into artificial intelligence systems. The key here is the capabilities on Azure. Now, we have sophisticated pre-trained models. Our friends from IBM have gone through a list of uh, the details of those. We have a comparable set of services there called the Azure Cognitive Services. There are popular frameworks, including Watson, as we've heard, that can run on Microsoft Azure. This covers the open source space, uh, things like TensorFlow, all the way through to Onyx, which is a collaborative project about making neural networks reusable. Productive services, uh, which includes uh, machine learning, DevOps processes, all the way through to CPUs, GPU capabilities uh, with the likes of uh, NVIDIA GPUs, all the way through to field programmable great arrays, which is a specialist piece of hardware that allows you to use your model as fast as possible. And when I say fast, I mean really fast. This is hardware level acceleration for deep learning, the kind of thing that can translate the whole of Wikipedia in about a second, that kind of speed. And this is available on premises, on the cloud, and on the intelligent edge. Ethical AI is something you've heard about earlier that I care about a lot. I taught you through the example of the illegal small-scale mining. You can bring that slightly closer into business examples with things like our work with the Ordnance Survey, who use a similar capability across satellite images to keep mapping data up to date. Similar technology, similar AI process, different outcome. And this is part of our AI for Earth program, where we're putting up grants to allow people to use technology and research in this space uh, to do good for the world. You can look at medical cases that we've heard, things like I work with Great Ormond Street Hospital. So we've seen medical applications on the one hand. What I love about this piece of work is they even built a model of the hospital in Minecraft to allow children going into hospital to experience the, the, the space they're going into before the medical procedure. And the more relaxed child is a child who's easier to treat. You can also look at assistive technology, and I think the best example of this, I'll play with a video, one of our um, uh, visually challenged Microsoft developers will talk you through the piece of software that he built. I'm Sakib Sheikh. I lost my sight when I was seven. And shortly after that, I went to a school for the blind. And that's where I was introduced to talking computers. And that really opened up a whole new world of opportunities. I joined Microsoft 10 years ago as a software engineer. I love making things which improve people's lives. And one of the things I've always dreamt of since I was at university was this idea of something that could tell you at any moment what's going on around you. I think it's a man jumping in the air doing a trick on a skateboard. I teamed up with like-minded engineers to make an app which lets you know who and what is around you. It's based on top of the Microsoft Intelligence APIs, which makes it so much easier to make this kind of thing. 
the app runs on smartphones, but also on the Pivot Head smart glasses. When you're talking to a bigger group, sometimes you can talk and talk and there's no response and you think, is everyone listening really well? Or are they half asleep? And you never know. I see two faces, 40 year old man with a beard looking surprised, 20 year old woman looking happy. The app can describe the general age and gender of the people around me and what their emotions are, which is incredible. One of the things that's most useful about the app is the ability to read out text. Hello, good afternoon. Here's your menu. Great, thank you. I can use the app on my phone to take a picture of the menu and it's going to guide me on how to take that correct photo. Move camera to the bottom right and away from the document. And then it'll recognize the text. Read me the headings. I see appetizers, salads, paninis, pizzas, pastas. Years ago, this was science fiction. I never thought it would be something that you could actually do. But artificial intelligence is improving at an ever faster rate. And I'm really excited to see where we can take this. Hey. As engineers, we're always standing on the shoulders of giants, building on top of what went before. And in this case, we've taken years of research from Microsoft Research to pull this off. I think it's a young girl throwing an orange frisbee in the park. For me, it's about taking that far-off dream and building it one step at a time. I think this is just the beginning. So this application is available right now for free on the iOS App Store. It also, in the latest release, does handwriting recognition, which for me, as a person on the dyslexic spectrum, has been really useful. So it can help you in all aspects of your life. The technology demonstrated within that app is available within the pre-built models that I mentioned on the Azure platform. So you can build something like that yourself. Now if we look at the last piece, every developer can be an AI developer and every company can be an AI company. Click. I'm going to take an example here that was inspired by seeing AI and was built by one of our digital agency partners uh, with Unilever, a customer of Microsoft. Now Unilever worked with the digital agency because they had a challenge. They had a dominant product in the market. They had the largest share of the savoury meat-based, uh, savoury yeast-based product spread category, and they didn't know how to build that brand. And this is where analog, came, analog folk came in to help with the Gene Project and the TasteFace app. And I'll let a video here speak for the great work of that partner. Taste Base, an innovative web app that invites people to taste Marmite, then uses science to analyse their reaction to it. We use Microsoft's Emotion API facial recognition technology and built an algorithm that officially separated the delighted from the disgusted. The Taste Base experience was crafted to be accessible for everyone, especially little lovers. Our bespoke technology decodes every reaction and gives each taster a lover or hater score of 0 to 100%. At the end of the experience, everyone gets a customizable and super shareable reaction GIF, so they can announce their lover-hater status to the world and deal with the consequences. In its first week, TasteFace was visited 65,000 times and beat X Factor to the top trending spot on Twitter. It quickly spread through industry press, and with the data collected, Marmite are finally learning who their biggest advocates are. 
So that's a fun family experience combined with some super smart tech to put Marmite firmly back on the breakfast tables of Britain. So what you see there again, we have the example of deep learning being used against satellite images to detect illegal small-scale mining and to help the Ordnance Survey to detect roof types for mapping. We've also seen cognitive service technology being used to help people who can't see experience the world and also in a fun marketing campaign. Now the real business impact of this technology is that they increased the sales of Marmite in Tesco by 60% through this app. They found a way to increase sales in a market dominant product. And that's what I want you to take away from this. Artificial intelligence gives us new possibilities. Microsoft AI, with our partners AI, with all of you, this is available to you right now. We've heard the big numbers. I've got little numbers here, only one or two. But we're here to help, and our partners are here to help, and you can do this from now in your businesses. Thank you very much. Hello. Um, so while I'll invite the, um, the speakers back onto the stage for the panel now. Um, I think it's something odd has just happened on that stage, I think. Um, it, what, not you, Phil. Um, I think we've had someone from Microsoft mention an IBM product on their cloud platform. We've had an IBM mention uh, an NVIDIA product in their server. Um, I think hopefully we, what we're getting from this is that this is about collaboration and partnerships. It's the fundamental part of what makes AI projects work. Um, so I've, uh, <laughs> it's, n it's not that democratic because we've actually spoken among ourselves and decided uh, on some of the questions that keep coming up in meetings. Uh, and we'd like to kind of maybe answer some of them today. But if there's any other questions you have, please reach out to everyone here. We'll all be on our respective stands and we can answer some more kind of private questions a bit later. So the first question that we've got is, uh, what are the barriers to uptake of this technology and how do we overcome them? Hands up. You're Phil? gonna have to pick somebody. <laughs> Phil, it's you okay. then. <laughs> well volunteered. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, the barriers really come down to, first of all, a bit of myth-busting that, you know, there's confused language in the market and people don't really know what's available to them and what they can do. And so people come to it and go, oh, it's not really for us because we don't really understand it. It's here right now and there are people who are very happy to help explain and help you understand it. So that's the first piece. We heard before as well, data is very important. If you don't have any data, you're going to have a difficult time getting to AI. And the third one, which I have a personal opinion about, is skills. Now, I think a lot of people need to focus on growing skills, and there's a lot of great content for learning out there. Everybody's talked about the learning content available. We also have learning content available. I think you should focus in on growing that talent as opposed to becrying the skill shortage. Great, thank you. Anyone else? I'm happy to go next. To, to be honest, I don't have a wildly different, and might come as a surprise, I don't have a wildly different opinion than that from Phil. I think that the, the main thing I see is this, this skills as a barrier to entry. I think uh, from a client perspective, that appears to be the first objection they'll throw our way is, okay, we get it, IBM, technology provider, we understand that AI is here and it's here to stay, but we don't have the skills necessarily to build this stuff out. I think the other thing as well is I think oftentimes people will try and do everything from day one and I think that's a mistake. 
Um, when you sit there and, and we go through, well, we're going to transform to be an AI-first company now, and we're going to make this huge U-turn, this huge pivot, they start to try and boil the ocean. I think often that's why projects don't get off the ground, because suddenly then you have to get a million stakeholders in the room, and all of them agree exactly what you're going to start doing and transform all of your enterprise data and come up with this entire strategy to do it. And I think the, the main thing I would encourage everybody to do, um, or work with your clients to do, is just to start. Right, find a project, but like the Marmite example was fantastic, right? F find that project and begin and see what comes off the back of that because you earn the right for the subsequent project, I think, after that. So, uh, skills, yeah, definitely, and people trying to do too much too early. Yeah, I would add to that as well that um, to, to get involved with, with, with AI and deep learning, you don't necessarily need to be doing the sort of creating a, a, a new you know, complicated artificial neural network from scratch. You know, that is, that's the extreme sort of version of this. And, and yes, you know, there are PhD level people who, are, who have spent years and years working on that, that those sort of problems. But to, to consume or to, to reuse a model that somebody has already developed, that perhaps already works on your data, you know, that's the sort of tier one level that actually doesn't really require much more than some rudimentary um, IT skills. You don't necessarily need to know any coding. You just need to know how to, you know, perhaps redeploy a, um, a, a piece of code or, or, or you know, a, an application. So you can actually, you know, use AI, consume AI with, with very little in the way of, of sort of prior knowledge if you're working at that level. I guess there's a, a sort of tier in between the two as well. Um, where perhaps you're taking somebody else's model that they've trained um, and you're retraining it with your own data set. That obviously requires a little bit you know, more on the sort of skill level, but again, it's not, you, know, you, you don't have to understand how this process works to be successful doing it. You've just got to, you know, you can follow sort of steps to do that. Um, on the sort of barrier side as well, just to add to some of the, those points that, you know, perhaps these are sort of, apply to healthcare a little bit more, but the mistrust sort of thing, you know, the black box we often hear about. And, you know, I would say healthcare is actually a kind of an extreme uh, version of this. But what you have to remember is that, you know, radiologists or pathologists, what they tend, the way they tend to work is they've been trained for so long on these things, they know pretty much instantly when they see an image whether something's wrong, you know, there's something wrong. So they pretty much make their minds up instantaneously before they've had time to actually, you know, rationalize it. And they then spend the rest of the, you know, the, the, the study looking for evidence to support that conclusion. So, you know, actually humans work on a sort of black box level as well. I mean, when we recognize somebody's face, you know, we can't really explain how we do it because it happens so instantaneously. And I think the other thing is, Think of most of the drugs that are on the market today. We actually have no idea how most of them work. But as long as they're safe and they, you know, they, they do the job that they've been, uh, uh, you know, they're supposed to do, then we're, we're generally happy to sign them off. You know, after the Food and Drug Administration will sign them off as being safe. So, you know, we shouldn't judge AI with, with different sort of criteria. Thanks. I guess the second question is one that keeps coming up in meetings that w I think we all have, is you know, what makes AI projects successful? Uh, shall, I, shall we go, go, the, uh, go the other way this time? Okay. Um, 
lots and lots of IBM technology. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, no, uh, to be honest with you, it's about, uh, the, the main thing I see, the main success factor is about bringing multiple stakeholders to the conversation early. Have the guy that's in charge of the data in the room with the DevOps team and the application developers. I know I had that one slide that discussed it, right, but, but getting them in the room with line of business. So the, the line of business guy can say, hey, this is the direction we want to go in as an enterprise. This is our business problem. And then in that room, you also are having the discussion with the machine learning engineer, the data scientist that's going to have to build the algorithm. So everybody has that visibility. I think that, that for me, is one of the major keys to success. Uh, because otherwise, you have um, this kind of this lost in translation almost uh, scenario where line of business say, oh, this is what we want. Here's a budget, data scientist, make it happen. And the data scientist doesn't really understand the challenges or anything like that, and vice versa. The guy coming up with the business objectives doesn't understand what's technically feasible, right? I've been in meetings where um, I've had uh, fairly senior people turn to me and say, uh, we want you to build us an AI system that will answer any question any of our executives get correctly. You just think, well, where do you want me to start with that? I mean, help me out, right? And I think it's about bringing everybody to the conversation early so that everybody knows where you're going. I think that's one of the major success factors. I think this touches on a really important point that was spoken on this morning in that this is not about replacing jobs. It's about augmenting ability. And, you know, we, we, I've heard numerous examples of, you know, financial markets is actually one that people speak about a lot about being automated. You know, the, the job of a broker, for example, you know, a machine can absolutely do that better, right? But well, actually, no, because you know the the actual repetitive bit of brokering can be can be done by a machine. But actually, there's a lot of functional knowledge in being a broker. So it's about teaming up a data scientist with a functional owner in that business to create a, a, an a, you know an AI that can go and do that role. So it's absolutely not about um, uh, replicating uh, or replacing jobs. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I think to add to the, <coughs> that point about getting all the stakeholders in the room, you know, first of all, defining who all the stakeholders in an AI project are. I mean, obviously, you know, it is a technical uh, project, but it's also about, you know, those, those, those outcomes. There's a financial um, incentive usually, you know, whether it's reducing costs or increasing productivity, you know, creating some sort of efficiency. So you need to really have all those different stakeholders in the room and, and make sure that you're sort of aligned in those things um, because otherwise, you know, one person's idea of success, which was simply to produce some PR and hashtag it with AI, you know, might think it's fantastic, but everybody else doesn't. So, you know, I think it's when people kind of go off on a tangent and lose, you know, the, the, the sort of those communications with the rest of the stakeholders are broken that that's when things tend to sort of go wrong i i find i think okay go on you phil uh, just um i think from a customer's perspective it's um it's choosing the right partner the partner that has the skill sets to be able to successfully um, deliver a solution and unfortunately we've seen some projects fail because the right partner hasn't been selected and, uh, and that's sometimes a fault of our own for not training and enabling that partner enough. Um, but ultimately our goal, um, certainly at NVIDIA, is to build a self-sufficient partner ecosystem so our partners can scale and reach every customer in every industry where we don't necessarily have that reach. Um, so it's ensuring that you internally as a partner um, train and retrain and develop your teams so that you can successfully deliver those successful AI projects. Right, thanks. So I, um, it is hard not to 
just agree. <laughs> um, so having a clear vision, to summarize, clear vision of what you want to achieve. The point was made earlier that AI, machine learning, data science is a team sport. And to make sure you're focusing on the education and the enablement needed. So we share all of those goals. Now just say as an extra piece, the education has to be across that full team. It is not just a technical topic. AI is an area. If you ask me, Alan Turing invented AI first, and then computer science was trying to catch up with his original ideas. So computer science is part of AI. When I learned it, search is part of AI. All of these things are learnable. You open yourself up to the field across the full range of business, people start to change the way they speak about how this software product is delivered. You can do that in your business, you can help educate your customers, and that helps towards the clear vision of what you're trying to achieve. Great, thanks. And I think you've actually all covered the next question a little bit in your, in your presentations, but uh, the next question was, uh, what are your respective vendors doing uh, to help partners uh, and enablement and go on that AI or ML journey if, if appropriate? So I think it's my turn to go first. <laughs> Um, so Microsoft is a partner-driven business. There are numbers related to that. Go and talk to somebody on the stand if you want to understand that. But the, I work at Microsoft because working with partners is the most exciting thing you can do in artificial intelligence. Yes, you can go off and be a researcher, but where the rubber hits the road, where you can make things real with all of the examples we've seen, are when companies come, come together around a real need and work together to make that happen. So partners are so important for Microsoft, and it's the reason I do this job, it's the reason I'm here today. Uh, to add to that, I think it's really important to define your place in the partner ecosystem and understand where your skill sets are, and don't try and do everything. You know, some of our most successful partners uh, focus on one particular area, then perhaps leverage a professional services partner um, to, to help with data analysis or another problem that needs to be fixed with the customer. So it's understanding where you fit into that partner ecosystem. As well, I think it's really important to um, approach an AI champion within your business, somebody that can really lead that strategy, as I mentioned earlier before. Uh, without that, you'll just have you know, so many different departments trying to do the same thing, there'll be duplicate efforts. Uh, you just need to have one champion to really drive forward that strategy. Thanks. I think the only thing I would add is just, you know, all of us here, all our respective companies and many others provide some fantastic uh, training materials to educate you on, on AI. So, you know, take full advantage of those. There's a lot of fantastic free stuff out there. Um, yeah, have a look around, see what, see, you know, and it's for all different levels as well, not, not just sort of techni technical, but business and, uh, you know, other areas, so look into it. Yeah, and, and the only thing I would add to that is, there's the 10 second to go sign that threw me earlier on, thanks. Um, the, the, the only thing I would, me twice, the only thing I would add is that, um, like, team up, Right, we're all here to collaborate. Frankly, AI literally is going to dramatically change the landscape over the next 5, 10, 18 months, right? Um, and I think it's about working together to solve those business challenges, right? So get in touch with your IBM, your Microsoft contact, or even NVIDIA. Like, let's team up and address these problems together because if we all pull in different directions, we simply won't. So, so get in touch and bring us in to, to bat with you because we are here to help. 
Thanks. So, um, could I ask, can we ask that we make the poll results available for everyone on the app? Is that okay? So we can check them throughout the day. Is that all right? Uh, and we, we'll just close up now. So I think just to give you some learning that we've seen um, arrow side around AI. Uh, so one of the first things I, I noticed around uh, this whole discussion around AI was I see vendors all the time talking about um, channel centricity and how they are 100% channel and uh, how they value channel partners. Never have I seen it be more true than in this area for the simple reason that none of them can scale without your ability and your knowledge of your customers. Every one of these projects is so custom that they won't, just simply won't be able to do it alone. So we should, as a channel, leverage that. And the vendors are definitely supporting the channel around this. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is this is absolutely a services play. Um, so this, this is not a resell anymore. Um, the partners that we've seen be successful with all three of these vendors, actually, are partners that have invested time and effort in really understanding uh, the solutions that have been um, shown today and have built services, implementation services, delivery services around this technology. Um, and I guess the third thing would be, it's been mentioned you know, slightly, is all these vendors have some really great collateral available for partners. So NVIDIA had the Deep Learning Institute, which will be able to take from Arrow Education um, imminently. Uh, I think that's, that's the resource that we'll start, start to share with partners in the next few weeks. Um, IBM have a plethora of, of resources around Watson Professional Services, the Hursley Labs, uh, Bluemix, or now IBM Cloud Garage. Uh, and Microsoft have similar ideation workshops and cloud workshops. So please make use of those uh, resources. They're absolutely for the channel. Uh, and the partners that we've been successful have been those that have built great networks and relationships in, in, those, in those facilities. So uh, we're slightly overrunning, so apologies for that. Um, thanks for joining us at the uh, AI workshop, and hope to see you around later. Thanks.